even if someone can feel that someone cares and is, and is interested and wants to talk when they're ready, that in itself can make a huge difference. So I guess my first bit of practical advice here would be to, to not be afraid of broaching it. You know, don't be afraid of asking or putting that flare out um, to see how someone's doing. Hello, hello, and welcome back. This is the final episode of the first series of the Straight Talking Doctor podcast. Before we get going, I just wanted to take two seconds to say how incredibly grateful I am for everyone who has listened so far. Your feedback has been phenomenal. I've loved every second of recording the first series, but you guys have really motivated me to come back bigger and better than ever for series two. I've got lots of incredible guests lined up. I can't wait to keep having these conversations, lifting the lid on mental health and hopefully empowering you guys with some useful tools that you can all use to improve your health and happiness. My guest this week is Dr. Kieran Kennedy, a consultant psychiatrist and TV doctor based in Sydney, Australia. I originally connected with Kieran during lockdown and found that his Instagram post quickly became a really useful source of knowledge and advice for helping me deal with the challenges of the pandemic. He's a keen fitness enthusiast and avid writer, having featured in things like Men's Health, GC and Vice. And if you're based in Australia, you may have seen him on the big screen as he's a co-host on Ticker Health and regularly stars as guest expert on different Australian news channels. During the conversation, we delve into the concept of toxic masculinity and what we can do more to challenge this in today's society, the potential upcoming advances in mental health treatments, and how we can look after ourselves when our external world becomes stressful or difficult. I made sure to quiz Kieran for his many useful tips on how we can look after our mental health, and he certainly did not disappoint. Kieran, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. It's been a little while since we organised this, and, and I'm absolutely delighted to sit down and finally get a chance to have a chat with you yeah no me too mate thank you so much for having me and um as you say i it's not easy coordinating between the uk and australia is it so so we've done well to finally find a time that suits especially with medical schedules and rotors and things definitely makes things a bit harder so let's get straight into it what sparked your interest in psychiatry and mental health yeah the the good question um well, like I've always been uh, sort of more on the artistic side in some ways, like before I um, became a bio nerd and decided I wanted to be a doctor and go to med school and all those things. Um, I actually did a lot of writing, reading, a um, bit of like even performance kind of stuff, music. Um, so I think for me, when I found psychology and then psychiatry, um, it just really clicked with me because psychiatry is kind of a, it's a science, obviously, and I'll defend that until the cows come home. Um, but it's, it's also a bit of an art. And I think I just really like that psychiatry is a little bit more fluid. It's a little bit more gray, dealing with really complex things that can't just be kind of looked at through a, a number of a test result or, or kind of squared away really easily. So I think for me, the, the, the complexity of psychiatry and the, the kind of the mixture of art and science is, is what drew me to it. Um, I actually did a psychology degree before I decided to punish myself with some more uh, years of study and go to medical school. So yeah, I, I always knew kind of right from that first psychology 101 class that that mental health and the brain and, and the mind were, were what really got me going. And so kind of when I decided I wanted to do medical school, psychiatry was the 
sort of the natural progression. So it, it feels a bit crazy to be sitting here now actually doing it. So, <laughs> And the clinical side is something obviously that you enjoy and you practice uh, at the moment, but you've been opening yourself up to uh, another side, really. And can you touch on that for us? Yeah, so obviously clinical medicine and, and psychiatry is, is my first love, um, and that's what I'll I'll always do in, in some form or, or some part of my week. But yeah, you're right, mate. I think the last few years I've been lucky enough to um, sort of fall in love with a little bit of a different side of medicine as well, which I know uh, you and I have, have talked and frothed over this together at, at times. You, you feel the same, but you know, when it comes to, to medicine, I think there's this whole other world of, of advocacy, um, sharing information, uh, getting getting facts across, myth busting and things. And, and whether that's on uh, social media or in the media or writing um, for a few different places, uh, I, I really enjoy that. And so I've been doing quite a bit of that the last few years as well. And that's included sort of morning TV um, over here in Australia, I do a wee bit of that to go on and chat about men's health topics or mental health topics. Um, I write for Men's Health magazine and, um, yeah, get to do really fun things like come on and then waffle with you on this podcast, mate. So, um, no, I just really love kind of, especially for mental health, um, I really love just kind of advocating around it and getting some facts out there and I sort of a non-stodgy, non-confronting way because I think for a long time, psychiatry especially has just been very um, very kind of uh, not within the mainstream, if you like. And I think that we really need to be pushing more of this from a factual medical kind of basis in the media and, and wider platforms. So, um, yeah, that's kind of kept me busy for the last few years alongside um, working at the hospital and things. Yeah, as if you weren't busy enough already. But it, like you say, it's absolutely great to see someone else in the healthcare space who wants to do a similar thing and, and, and try and advocate and, and push their message and what they have learned to as many different people as possible. Um, and I guess that's why I was drawn to your Instagram. For the people listening with the sharp ears, you may hear Kieran doesn't have an English accent. Um, it's actually, I think, New Zealand, if I'm right, after our first conversation. Correct. I fell for the trap that Kieran lives in Australia but it actually has uh, a Kiwi accent. Um, Very good. Yeah, it's, it, it's been amazing being able to connect with someone who is who is down under, and and be able to have these sort of conversations and and you know learn from each other and and, and further each other's sort of message. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I've really loved what you're doing as well, Mark. And like you say, that I think that's why, kind of just over over socials we we sort of clicked and we're interested in advocating for the same thing and you know i think especially when it comes to men's health and then especially again when it comes to mental health and psychiatry we've just got such a long way to go in kind of getting info out there and banging back on stigma and things so um you know chats like this and spaces like this are what really get me excited about medicine actually um because i think we can do so much good within the hospital, but you know, if you think about a, the impact that a, a piece of writing or a you know a, a little TV talk or a podcast might have in terms of getting out there to people who need it, um, you know, that's a really motivating thing. So, no, I'm definitely loving it so far. Absolutely, you can suddenly increase that reach and that ability to do good to to a much you know wider audience, and I think that's a, that's quite a special thing to be able to do. So if you don't follow Kieran, I'd fully recommend it. It's Dr. Kieran Kennedy, I believe the tag is on Instagram. 
And if you look at his Instagram, he tackles big topics on mental health. But actually, his content is underpinned by an in-depth knowledge of psychiatry. And he helps to simplify some fairly complex subject matter. Um, so really worth a read. There are a lot of, you know, inverted commas experts on social media, but it is refreshing to have someone who who practices as a, you know, a basically fully qualified psychiatrist to talk about, you know, wellness and, and mental health. I'm really interested, Kieran, to know how much crossover is there between the topics that you talk about online and the day-to-day interactions that you have with your actual patients? I really love that question, actually, Mark, because it's an interesting one. You know, I think a lot of the a lot of the topics surrounding mental health that we do talk about in the social media space, in the media space, and kind of in the general public, um, a lot of those those topics and avenues are things that do come up in clinic and in the hospital every day. Um, so, you know, depression, anxiety, struggling with identity, relationships, breakups, job changes, city changes. You know, these are things that psychiatry registrars and psychiatrists are seeing people about and talking to people about every single day. And so I do really love kind of getting those topics out there from a place, as you say, hopefully, of some evidence-based psychiatry and clinical kind of experience. Um, But, you know, I also really enjoy getting the topics out there uh, that maybe the public don't get to hear or see about too much, Um, because I think it's it's, um, really important to acknowledge that, you know, some of the glossier kind of mental health stuff we see on social media and online and on TV segments and things – it can be quite separate from from that public mental health and psychiatry where we're talking about severe schizophrenia, where we're talking about people struggling with homelessness, severe trauma, um, you know, and, and really kind of intense things that I, I think for a long time, you know, the, the wider public have shied away from in some ways, if that's the right term, and, and I understand why, but I think it's important that in, sorry that we're balancing these things you know obviously depression anxiety adjustment disorders these are our high prevalence things but you know psychiatry for a public psychiatrist at least is very much also you know psychosis and severe addiction and severe trauma self-harm suicide Um, and so like I say I always try and balance it but with the kind of the advocacy work I do, I do try to kind of get that side of psychiatry out there a little bit more as well because, you know, I think it's important that people know that, um, you know, pushing, going for a run or working on your diet or doing some mindfulness each day, that is really, really important for us to look after our mental health. But it's also really important that we acknowledge for some people severe mental health conditions or severe struggles are things that do require that more in-depth kind of uh, level of care and support and, and medication at times. So, yeah, it's a bit of a balance, but but as you say, mate, I try and kind of um, show a bit of realness to things and I try my best to, to kind of put quite complex, at times quite confronting topics um, in, in kind of relatable, simple ways that you know, don't have people turn away from them because I think that's been part of the stigma around psychiatry and mental health for a long time too. It's kind of been this, well, that's really intense or emotional or maybe at times quite confronting. And and so I, I don't want to see that or hear about that. But it's important that we all 
see and hear and talk about these things because health is mental health. Um, and so if we're on this mission to bring psychiatry and mental health into the mainstream more, then we need to be kind of balancing those things. That's a great answer. Trauma is something that came up there. And I just want to touch on, mm. on trauma and you, you sort of classed it in the, in the side of things that you're talking about with hospital patients there and it's severe trauma you're dealing with um, and the fallout from that. But I think we hear a lot about trauma on social media, particularly now um, that it affects everyone and it affects everyone in a different way. And it's a bit of a spectrum, really. Um, and it's like your sort of relation with trauma uh, can therefore affect how you are put together in the way that your mental health works. Can you touch a little bit on, on trauma for us and maybe, I don't know, explain how you deal with that with your hospital patients and, and what the difference is, uh, or is there any difference with patient, with people online and how they discuss trauma? Yeah, I think that's that's such a great question and such a por- an important one to put across, mate. Um, you know, you're right. I think our, our sort of more traditional or older definition of trauma was very much driven by diagnostic kind of manuals and the DSM um, or the ICD and things who, you know, in, in older times they classified trauma as sort of those severe physical or sexual abuse um, cases or, or obvious kind of overt trauma. But we know now that trauma can occur in many, many different forms. It can be um, psychological, emotional, physical, uh, and you're exactly right there. You know, these days we look at trauma not as something that people either have or don't have, but as a bit of a spectrum, you know, and I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who doesn't have some form of, of difficulty or or some form of trauma in their background. And again, that's a, on a very different spectrum for different people and we're not comparing traumas here or, or weighing them up on a scale. Uh, for some people that might be really horrific physical abuse or trauma. For other people that might be the more subtle emotional type trauma within past relationships or family systems. And I think the the fascinating thing about psychiatry is that all of those things come into the picture when when you're helping support someone with whatever their mental struggles are. And I think especially when we're going through difficult times that are stressful, there's a lot of change, they're confronting like the pandemic, for example, I think our past kind of patterns and traumas and ways of relating with the world and others, those have been kind of stressed and pushed. And I think a lot of people have been talking about trauma more online, you're right, because we've really kind of had to to confront um, our, our own sort of trauma more because of what we're all kind of going through at the moment. So yeah, I, I absolutely think it's a spectrum. Um, and I absolutely think it's important that that people know that, you know, you don't have to feel that your quote unquote trauma is at a certain point to to warrant reaching out for support or talking through that or um, seeing someone for because that's that's a bit of a myth from the past. I think that that trauma has to be a certain severity or level to be worthwhile um, sort of incorporating into your care. Yeah, you raise a few interesting points there um, regarding trauma. And that for me is is the biggest sort of take home I've had with trauma. And even looking at myself um, and the people around me and working out, you know, trauma doesn't have to be severe, and you can still have long lasting effects and your personality can be massively changed or, or shaped by the, the trauma you have. And 
other people may experience that trauma or may have experienced that trauma and not have any lasting effects. And that's, that's fascinating. And once you understand that, it makes it a little bit easier to work out, you know, different quirks in your own personality, particularly um, why we act in certain ways. You know, it's absolutely fundamental to, I think, a lot of the behaviors that we have. Absolutely. And I think it's important to point out as well that, um, you know, what might be traumatic for one person may not necessarily be traumatic for another person. And that can depend on our upbringing, our biology, our genetics, our, our early family systems. Um, but, you know, particularly in recent years, there's been so much going on um, and we've been talking about trauma a lot more. And I think it's important to say that what might be traumatic for you might not be for your next door neighbor. And so that doesn't mean that it's it's less worthy or um, that people should feel guilty or shamed about being triggered by something or struggling with something because, you know, we're all an extremely unique kind of mental makeup of, of genetics, biology, um, life history, early relationships, our experiences. And, you know, for me, that's the fascinating thing part about psychiatry as well just as you say mark some two people can go through the exact same thing and come out with very very different kind of mindsets and, and mental um sequelae of that and two people can go through two very different things but end up in a very similar position mental health wise so it's it's fascinating but it's about all of us kind of leaning into the fact that you know, it's uncomfortable, especially in medicine, I think, to have gray areas and to have things not neatly kind of tied off into diagnostic manuals or test results or boxes. But, you know, psychiatry is very fluid and at times it's very gray. And I actually think that's that's what's beautiful about it. And if we embrace that more, I think it can actually leave us all feeling a lot less guilty and ashamed when it comes to what we might be struggling with, because there's no rule book here. Yeah, fully agree. And the grayness, I think, transcends just mental health. And, and it actually, when we look further into sort of, you know, health in general, particularly nutrition science and things like that, there is so many gray areas. And I think we have a tendency as people and a population society to want to know what the diagnosis is, want to know the exact answer. And sometimes that doesn't always fit. Uh, we're finding out more and more with emerging science that it's not always as simple as that. Um, and when we have an, understand, an understanding that there is some woolly, woolly sides to things, there is some grayness, it can actually help. It can help you understand the problem that you have. And therefore, you know, as a result of that, you can understand that there are different treatments or it's not always as simple as taking this one specific pill or t doing this one specific thing to fix it. There is there is tons and tons of, you know, of different possibilities relating to that fact. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, mate. And I think um, the great thing about that is that it's, um, you know, I think it allows us to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and a little bit kinder to others as well when we when we don't kind of box it off so much. You know, I think when we lean into the fact that this is this is a bit grey, as you say, it can be a bit woolly sometimes in terms of there's no clear cutoffs here. I think it just helps us all lean into being a little bit more compassionate towards ourselves and to those around us because we've all 
got a history you know you know to be a bit cliche we've all got baggage in some form some might be heavier than others and and in different types of bags for sure but you know no one is completely struggle free and everyone has mental health and everyone has mental struggles Um, and that's a big part of the message that I kind of love pushing as well and so I think leaning into the fact that this is kind of messy and complex and gray I think actually really helps that rather than hinders that because it just means we we stop being so kind of controlled and and trying to label everything and as you say find the exact answer and the exact treatment and we just lean into the fact that this is messy and sometimes there's no completely right answer or completely right treatment Um, and that can actually be a beautiful thing in some ways. Yeah and some people may feel that their baggage is heavier than someone else you know, that they might not be, but you know, it's how you respond to that baggage. And I guess that's just touching on what we were saying before. And we all need a little bit more self self-compassion, don't we? If we all employed a little bit of that self-compassion to ourselves, we we would all be in a much better place. We're, we're, we're often at fault for being too harsh on ourselves. I know particularly as medics we are, but, but the, you know, the vast proportion of the population i think is very hard on themselves so i think that's fantastic advice i'm not going to go too much into the pandemic because it feels like it's never ending and i know it is over in australia we're recording this on the 9th of january uh, and it never seems to end um but i will touch on something in terms of trauma that you just mentioned what do you think the fallout will be from the pandemic in terms of mental health yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a big fallout for for years, if not decades to come. You know, I think the the fascinating and slightly terrifying thing about mental health and its impacts is that the impacts often come later. So I know in, in many countries around the world, the UK and Australia and included you know we've been talking about oh but right now there's there's not an increase in suicide rates for example um, or right now the mental health statistics are, are this or that but I think what we know as, as psychiatry doctors is that the fallout of stressful events and events like this can be far reaching and it can often catch up with us a bit later so you know, I really do think that those those big bang um, diagnoses, the common ones like depression, anxiety, um, types of trauma responses and, and impacts are, are going to rise significantly. And, and they have been over the pandemic. Um, we've seen especially young people and young adults be hit really hard by this. Um, so, for example, the hospital I've been working at, there's been a, a big increase in the city in young people presenting with distress, suicidal thoughts, self-harm. And I think that just points to the fact that a lot of people are really struggling with the, the constant change and uncertainty, the the isolation and everything that the pandemic's brought. So, you know, I, I think we are going to be seeing impacts for a long time. Um, but, you know, I always like to spin it with a bit of an optimistic tagline too. And if anything, the silver lining of the pandemic, I think, or I hope, is that we're going to keep having discussions like this more, you know, and the the really beautiful thing I've seen in the last two years is that we have been talking about mental health more. People have been coming out and talking about the ways that this has impacted them, 
you know, we've had actors and musicians and um, elite sports people coming out and talking about their diagnoses and, and medications. And, you know, I think one of the positive things is that this has really kind of leveled a lot of us and it's shown that we all, again, just as we've been saying, we all struggle in some way and that it's okay to struggle, especially when something like this has been happening. It's not weird or abnormal or faulty if you've fallen into a depression or your anxiety has really shot up over the last year or two. Um, it's actually a very normal human response in some ways and it, it's nothing to be ashamed of or guilty about. Yeah, completely agree. I think there was a, a sort of slow awakening in terms of mental health happening and I guess the pandemic has been like injecting uh, a ton of steroids into that. Yes, um, yeah people have really started to take ownership and responsibility for their health and particularly mental health and as a, a consequence of that we do tend to talk about it more you know we're you know, I'm starting a whole whole goddamn podcast on mental health perhaps I wouldn't have done that before I wouldn't have started my Instagram page without the pandemic I felt like I had to step up and, and do something more yep. um, so you know just as a little microcosm there you know in, in my instance you know I'm trying to spread my message through you know as a result of the pandemic so that mm -hmm. is the flip side I love the fact you're flipping it positive uh, despite the fact yeah of course there is going to be fallout for for many a year I feel as well one of the things I think is spoken about more now uh, thank God is toxic masculinity mm -hmm. um, and I want to know from a psychiatrist, what is toxic masculinity and how damaging is it? Yeah, um, really, really important question. And, and I do talk about this quite a lot over in Australia. Um, you know, there's some pretty rigid ideas about masculinity and manhood everywhere. But, you know, particularly in New Zealand, where I grew up and in Australia, those can be you know, pretty rock solid sometimes. So, you know, toxic masculinity, and, and I want to point out actually first off that, that toxic masculinity isn't actually a term that I'm a big fan of, to be honest, um, because I think it's kind of one of these terms that has been thrown out there and it's taken on a bit of a life of its own. Um, and I think it's important to call out that we are not talking about men or masculinity or manhood being toxic or inherently wrong. Or we're not talking about one type of masculinity being the, the good type or the non-toxic type and the other type of masculinity being, you know, bad, toxic, dangerous, wrong. Um, we are talking about a social construct. That's what masculinity and femininity are for the most part. It's a social construct in terms of how men um sort of feel that they need to act in society to show that they are men and have masculinity. And when we're talking about toxic masculinity, we're talking about elements of that which are unhealthy for men themselves, for women, and for communities at large. So an example of something that might be wedged within more toxic types of masculinity would be the belief that men don't show emotion or men need to suck it up and never cry or show any weakness. Or it might be that men need to display physical dominance and control over other people if they're going to be masculine and manly. Um, and those are two examples because we know that those two behaviors and ideas are linked to poorer health outcomes mentally and physically for men and for women and for the communities around those men. So when we're talking about toxic masculinity, we're talking about parts 
of masculinity that society has placed onto men that are not so helpful when it comes to their health and the health of the world around them. It's a great explanation. Um, and I agree. I guess I hadn't really thought of it in that sense. Um, and I guess you, as you talk about it quite a lot, you probably get some, maybe some, uh, uh, some heat from people that say you know why are you calling men toxic and i think the way you describe their toxic types of masculinity just gives it enough detail that kind of makes a, a little bit more sense and would probably um, prevent people feeling like they were being attacked uh, from the term uh, i don't know if you agree on that yeah no that's a that's definitely in line with my thoughts there as well mate and i think it's you know it's really really important um i think especially for men to feel like you know, it's not the man himself that is toxic or wrong. You know, so much of masculinity and femininity, if we actually pull it apart, is a small amount of biology and genetics in terms of what makes a man act like a man and what makes a, a woman or someone who is identifying with a, a feminine gender act feminine. Uh, and most of these constructs are actually societally built. So, I act, or whoever it is, act masculine not because of this thing in my brain that says it's weak if men cry. That That is a social construct that we've picked up as children through watching other men or little conscious or subconscious cues we've picked up from the environment. Um, and so it's an important point to call out because I think if we make men feel sort of attacked or ashamed, we know that making someone feel shame is actually doing the opposite when it comes to behavior change. If you make someone feel ashamed or attacked for their behavior, then it actually makes them less likely to engage in different types of behaviors or health behaviors um, to, to put themselves in a better position mental health-wise. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Matt. I always like to point out that this is this is not about men being inherently toxic or bad or wrong this is about the social construct and parts of of what men are pushed to sort of be and do being not so healthy for them and for those around them sometimes so on that note of behavior change and ensuring people don't feel shamed uh, so that they are more likely to change their behavior um how do we go about dismantling or overcoming you know toxic types of masculinity mm. Yeah, and that's the that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I wish I had a like a banging, just a straightforward answer for this one, but it's tough because, like you say, I think any of these social constructions they are really complex and they take a long time to change because it comes from society and culture around us. Um, so I think that the first step is discussions exactly like this, mate. I think it's discussions around what modern manhood and modern masculinity is and isn't. Um, you know, it's it's about brothers, you know, modeling different behavior for younger brothers. It's about fathers raising sons in a slightly different way. You know, it's it's about even simple things like telling young boys, um, you know, that, that it's okay to be upset or cry or that it's not, it's not kind of weak if you tell you know, if you're not telling a, a young boy, you know, boys don't cry. Um, you know, I think it's us slowly as men and as women as well, you know, changing the narrative around what masculinity and femininity are or have to be. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from men starting to feel more comfortable to kind of step out 
of those shackles, if you if you call it that, in a dramatic way, and sort of um, show that you know they can be vulnerable, they can show emotion, uh, they don't have to be sort of, for example, physically aggressive or dominant to to still be masculine or or a man. Um, yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Um, like you say, it's it's a tough question to answer because it is so ingrained in our society. Um, but absolutely, I think we are making small minor steps forward. Um, do you have anything else that if you ever see an example of toxic masculinity, so for anyone that is feeling a little bit like they don't know how to approach that, is there the right way to go about, you know, approaching it? Do you approach it? Is there, you know, is there a conversation or, or a line of conversation that you can take with someone um, that you've seen work in your experience? Yeah, again, I think that can be really tricky, you know, and I think when we're thinking about being out with mates or being out with the lads, you know, I think we can all kind of really pick up examples of things that kind of fall into those really stereotypical kind of oh, hard and up made or, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and obviously a lot of that is just banter, but there's a bit of a layer underneath that as well that kind of reinforces a lot of these things. Um, I think if guys or, or anyone really is noticing some examples of this, it would just be, like you say, in a relaxed way, pointing it out. Um, and I think that's easier if it's more overt. You know, I think if it's if it's kind of, for example, maybe more misogynist or kind of uh, sexist attitudes towards women, I think a lot of men now are kind of okay with calling that out to their mates. Um, but, you know, if it's the more subtle stuff, it can be really difficult. And, you know, in my personal and professional life, I think one of the ways that I've kind of gone about it or talk to patients or people about going about it is to is to kind of be the change that you that you want to see and kind of modeling that um, for our family units and our mates and and those type of things so it's it's about not being afraid I guess to lean into asking mates how they're doing for example or you know being open with mates about maybe struggling right now or talking about kind of more touchy-feely things you know i think the more we model these things and, and lean into being vulnerable ourselves the more that shows men around us that it's it's okay to do the same because you're still you're still a lad and you still got masculinity and you're still a man if you're doing those things so yeah i think kind of leading leading from yourself is, is a good way to go about kind of changing some of these things yeah, I love the I love the point about being brave because because it's hard, isn't it? You're being yeah. out with out with your mates. Um, we've all heard um, and been part of discussions. I think looking at my own and my own sort of personal experience, we definitely have come on um, as a friendship group, even in the last five years, three years, two years, probably. Um, so that we call out anything that you know, or we try to call out as much as possible um, that we are aware of. Um, you know around us and and trying to set that example but that's not always been the case um and i think we have moved on a society and i think it's hard to sometimes take personal responsibility or collective responsibility for the fact that maybe you know at certain points we have been privy to not standing up or even making comments yourself um and i think it's okay to it's okay to take responsibility for that because if you don't, you don't change. Um, and that can Absolutely. be hard. And I think a lot of people do find that hard. But the more of us that step up and do that, the more we will um, question and challenge and try to dismantle any of these sort of negative social constructs that we have, you know, particularly with regards to um, 
toxic types of masculinity. 100%. I just want to change tack a little bit here. We've we've been advancing in modern medicine, um, treating physical illness uh, over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, there's been tons of advances in so many different areas. I've not seen a lot of movement with uh, medications or treatments for mental health conditions. And I think generally there is a feeling um, that our mental health has, has gotten worse. Mm. So I guess there's two elements to this question. Why have we not seen many advances? And secondly, um, why is our mental health getting worse? Mm. Yeah, such good points there, mate. And and you're right, you know, there was this big explosion kind of 50, 60, even 70 years ago now with our, our most basic psychiatric medications. And in a lot of ways, most of those medications are still exactly the same um, or they're the same class of medication at least. And, and as, that's just an example of, as you say, um, how difficult it is, I think, to find um, biological and, and medication-based treatments to treat conditions of the mind. Um, but I think it's also... Uh, a bit of a flavor or, or a blowback to the fact that for a long time now, mental health and psychiatry, and I'll get on my soapbox a little bit here, have come second to, to talking and thinking about physical health. And, you know, again, not to, not to jar anyone, not to, not to prod me on my surgical colleagues or anything like that, but, you know, I think within medicine itself, um, psychiatry for a long, long time now has kind of been the area of medicine where not a whole lot of attention and even funding has gone to. Um, you know, there are some really kind of dire but interesting statistics, for example, showing how much funding mental health and psychiatry gets as a specialty around the world compared to other areas of medicine. And so I think it's been a bit of a combo of, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to find treatments that, that are effective for mental health conditions. We have some fantastic ones now that really, really work. But you're right, we're kind of waiting for those next advances. They are coming, you know, we're, we're investigating new medications, they're looking into psychedelics, um, and a whole host of new avenues. But yeah, I think it's been this combo of waiting for the next kind of explosion of treatments to be discovered, but also kind of us needing to catch up in terms of actual attention and funding and time being put more on mental health. Can I just quickly touch on psychedelics there? Um, really interesting. They were around in the 50s and 60s. They were used a little bit and then they were banned quite quickly. Uh, if you look down into any sort of US history, um, you know, the war on drugs and things and, and Nixon, you'll see sort of some of the uh, some of the reasons why they were sort of hushed away uh, and no research has been done on them but there is a uh, there is a new avenue and there are a lot of people very excited about the potential of psychedelics in psychiatry um what's your thoughts on this you know what what's your understanding of of what's coming um and you know are you excited to see that side of things yeah you know i think this this is really one of the areas that obviously the public are, are hearing more about but especially within medicine and psychiatry, where we're really kind of looking at this with, with wide open eyes and, and quite a lot of excitement. Because as we've just said, for a long time, we really haven't had any major new areas of, of treatment, particularly kind of medication-based treatment, um, coming into the play for mental illness. And there are some really good, promising 
sort of results from, from some of these studies. And I think it's important to point out that at the moment, it's, it's very much in the study phase for a lot of things. Um, but for example, ketamine um, is being used for severe depression and, and different conditions. And that's actually showing a lot of benefit for a lot of people. And that's actually being used in, in different places around the world and in some areas quite a lot right now. So, you know, it's, it's very exciting. I think that we're starting to explore these avenues again after so long having them kind of fully off the table for various uh, often very political reasons. Um, and I think it just offers a lot of hope for a lot of people who have not sort of as of yet found an avenue or a medication that's really worked for them. And for a lot of people, the studies are showing that in certain forms and for certain conditions, they are really, really um, helpful. So watch this space, but it's definitely exciting for a, a sort of a baby psychiatrist like myself to see this kind of coming onto the floor. Yeah, what a dream to have, you know, hopefully during your time as a consultant psychiatrist, you know, a plethora of different treatments come through that that may give you different avenues to treat, particularly treatment resistant depression and, and, and diseases uh, that we really struggle to treat with our current current arsenal of treatments at the moment. So yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely. I want to touch on something uh, a little bit sensitive here. Um and it's it's the topic of suicide uh, because I think these days so many of us have been, you know, indirectly or directly sort of affected by knowing someone that has you know committed suicide or you know you hear about it in your circles um, so often um, and particularly with you know our interest in men's health, three quarters of suicides are men, and there, there is a, you know a fairly large difference between between women and men on this uh not to not to sort of negate the importance for women in suicide of course but why do you think men are more likely to take their own lives yeah you know and i really really want to say thank you for for opening this this question and this topic up mate because as you say it's a it's a difficult one it can be a confronting one to talk about but yeah it's exactly the same over here in australia um you know the eight to nine sort of suicides every day and um, the vast majority of those are men um, you know there's a there's a lot in behind this you know academically and medically for example we know that men are more likely to pass away from suicide because for example men are more likely to go without formal psychiatric or psychological support for all of those things we've already touched on men are more likely to stay quiet and not let people know they're struggling and men are more likely to have a condition become severe and reach that potential point um, whereas women are more likely to make an appointment reach out for support from friends or family see a psychiatrist or a psychologist so that's involved here um, we also know and again this is quite confronting but we know from research that men are far more likely than women to take more lethal means of attempting suicide and so there are a significant amount of men and women every day, unfortunately, attempting to take their own lives. But we know that women are more likely to attempt that via means that are less lethal or less likely to go forward. And men are more likely to take means or measures um, which are, are potentially higher in lethality. So, you know, those are just two examples of why this is a complex thing to unpick for men. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons I love getting this stuff out there and, and talking about even topics like this, even the confronting, um, you know, obviously 
devastating ones is that part of this is men not presenting for help or not speaking out um, when they're really struggling. Um, and so I think if we can even start to shift that a little bit, that is going to be a part of us tackling men's suicide because you're right, it's a it's a huge, huge issue. And, you know, it's still sort of shocks me. I remember sitting in a psych- psychology lecture um, and having a, a shiver go down my spine when the, the lecturer read out that the most common cause of death for young men um, is suicide. And if you think about, well, physical illnesses, cancer, road traffic accidents, any other cause of young men dying, the number one cause is men taking their own lives. And that, to me, is just incredibly sad and gut-wrenching. And, and that is part of the reason why I actually wanted to become a psychiatrist, to, to be able to have a a foot in the door with helping prevent that from happening. So, yeah, it's it's something that we really need to tackle. Absolutely. Kieran, so we've really hashed out some meaty topics uh, regarding mental health, but I'm mindful and I think it'd be negligent not to take this opportunity to try and give my listeners some actionable tips that they can take away from the conversation. So something tangible they can they can use in their daily lives from now. So let's take a situation. Um, You have seen one of your friends is potentially struggling with their mental health. And we get asked this all the time. It can be really difficult for people to go and approach that person. So what is your best bit of advice or how do we go about approaching these difficult conversations? Yeah, and that, that is like such a good place to start, I think, because obviously it's the place that it all starts, right? I think if we're not talking about this stuff like we've just kind of mentioned before I, I think you know there's, there's no way for any of us to kind of start that process of of getting help or recovering or feeling better and so it's so important whether it's a family member or a mate or even just a colleague or a gym buddy like I think it's so important to at least extend the branch and extend you know the hand to open that door and I think people really worry that that's going to be met with awkwardness or that person's not going to want to talk about it and my view and advice is always that that's okay you know in terms of like quitting smoking or so many other things we do in our lives or maybe talk to others about you know it's not always the first time that things kind of connect and I think even if someone can feel that someone cares and is, and is interested and wants to talk when they're ready, that in itself can make a huge difference. So I guess my first bit of practical advice here would be to, to not be afraid of broaching it. You know, don't be afraid of asking or putting that flare out um, to see how someone's doing um, because there are a lot of myths that float around as well in terms of, you know, maybe if we make someone talk about it, it's going to make it worse. Um, I think for parents and teenagers particularly, there's been this really dangerous myth that if we ask about safety and suicide and self-harm thoughts, it's going to put those thoughts in someone's brain and make them more likely to do it. Research shows that's absolute rubbish. Um, So I think the first practical pieces of advice is just to not be afraid to ask. Um, And I get that this is difficult stuff and it can feel a bit awkward and messy and emotional, but we need to kind of push through it and ask. 
Um, I guess on the practical sense in terms of, um, you know, people are probably listening and saying, okay, okay, mate, that's fine, but how do we actually do that? Um, you know, I often talk about something um, called a diffuser. People might have, you know, you probably have seen me uh, mate, rambling about this or, or ranting about it on Instagram in different places, but um, a diffuser is adding something within the discussion to kind of act as a little bit of an in-between so that it can take some of the intensity and emotion out of that initial kind of question and, and discussion. Um, and particularly for people who are not used to talking about their feelings, particularly for men uh, who find it more difficult to open up about these things because of all those social pressures, um, this can be really helpful. So, Broaching the topic or asking someone how they're going while you're driving, for example, and you're side by side, that has a lot of research to show that it can actually make it easier. Um, it might be when you're washing the dishes together at the end of the night. It might be while you're going for a light jog as, as, as a mate. Um, if there's something kind of in the middle, and especially if that involves a physical kind of action and a little bit of a distraction, um, research actually shows that that can help people open up and make it easier for them to start talking. And I think that's just because it makes it a little bit less kind of emotionally intense and full on for both sides initially. So I think if you're wanting to ask someone how they're doing, you're wanting to broach that talk about mental health, you know, adding a diffuser and 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 kind of having that as a bit of an in um, is a nice little practical piece of advice for kind of how to how to start that conversation. The diffuser is a brilliant idea and I think it makes a lot of sense really in terms of sort of the human psyche and, and how our brains work. And it just feels a lot less confrontational. If you've got something else to do, um, it feels a bit less intense because you're talking about something that is potentially very intense. In a different situation, so we have discussed a little bit about suicide today. And often we hear about these situations where people haven't mentioned at all that they are feeling low. And the end result, unfortunately, is that they've taken their own life. How do we do better at finding this in our friends and our loved ones? And how do we go about working out who are the right people to ask if there are no signs? Yeah, yeah. And it's it can be a really, really difficult thing. Um, you know, I, I think like we've just said, a, it's a difficult thing because it's a it's a really scary thing. You know, I think we need to acknowledge that as family members, friends, colleagues. Um, you know, it can be actually really emotional and scary for us to kind of feel that that might be there in, in someone we love as well. Um, so I think it's difficult because on both sides, it's obviously an incredibly, you know, um, emotional difficult quite traumatic thing um, and then as you say a lot of the time it can be missed because it's not something we talk about or bring up often obviously and it's not something that is easy to talk about either um, I think kind of along the same lines of, of sort of what we've just said mate I think the key thing is to know that it's okay to ask and it's actually really important to ask. Um, it's really, really important for people to know that if you're asking that question, 
it doesn't increase the risk of that happening. Um, and I do want to push that. You know, all of our research shows if you are asking someone how they're doing and if you're asking if they're safe or if they've had any thoughts of not wanting to be here anymore, you infinitely kind of reduce the risk of that happening by asking and reaching out compared to increasing the risk of it. And for a long time, this myth has been that if we get someone talking about it, it's going to increase the chance of something happening. And that's just not the case. So again, I think it would always be to just remember that you can ask and we should be asking, Um, you know, and, and I think people worry around how to ask that and obviously your job is not to be the psychiatrist or the psychologist in this scenario Um, so it can be as simple as asking someone if they're feeling safe Um, or it can be as simple as asking someone if they've you know had any thought cross their mind about not wanting to be here anymore um, I often like to lead into that question and and those discussions by saying um, You know, it's actually really common for people who are in a really, really tough situation or who are struggling with low mood to have those thoughts come into their mind. Um, So has that come up for you? You know, and so I think if we can take some of the, if we can say, take some of the, the, clinical kind of coldness out of out of this question and out of talking about suicide and self-harm I think that can go a long way in in making people feel more comfortable to ask and and equally hopefully back people more comfortable to to open up about their safety and how they're feeling and whether that's there for them so I think always just ask um, would be my main sort of piece there yeah and I think it's important to just take a minute to sort of understand why this happens and why people get to that point and I think part of the problem with depression and why it's so hard to spot is the nature of what is happening in people's brains when they are depressed means it's very difficult for them to open up to other people because they feel maybe an element of shame they feel like they're a burden and if they open up first then they would be making the situation worse and it's it's in their mind it's more difficult to open up than it is to actually end up taking their own life. Yes. And that, that's a really difficult concept to get around in your mind, but that's as, as as damaging as depression is on someone's brain. And so I guess what I would also add in terms of what you've, what you've illustrated there really nicely is kind of just making it a regular practice and normalizing mental health check-ins between sort of friends Um, A really good one I've got at the moment is I have a diary which has every week uh, just a section that says friends I want to check in on. And what I've tried to make my sort of practice over the last couple of months is, is I'm going to check in on on a a certain couple of people or, or, you know, someone I haven't spoken to. And and within that conversation, I'm challenging myself to try and open up about mental health a little bit more and just just see if if they need any sort of support. Um, and just making it that regular process and making it a habit, then we'll just, you know, sort of uh, extend into the rest of your life, hopefully. Absolutely. And I love that so much, mate, because, yeah, that's what I was just going to add as well. I think it's normalizing these kind of discussions and it's normalizing checking in and it's normalizing making sure that that safety or checking if someone's feeling safe is always a part of that, you know, because I think, 
you know, for, for sometimes understandable reasons, but, you know, for a long time, I think suicide in society has been something that's just been so swept under the rug. And even within the media, for example, if someone passes away, it, it's never directly said or spoken about, but it's always kind of hinted at or inferred. And, and so I think on both sides, there's the sense, there can be the sense of shame. And this is something that we shouldn't be asking about or checking in about. But, you know, it's, it's actually incredibly common for people to have thoughts just thoughts um of of self-harm or suicide if they're going through a really tough time and that doesn't mean that they're going to act on those thoughts but you know it's, it's actually a lot more common than i think a lot of people assume and so we need to be talking about it checking in about it just as you say because that helps us catch things early it helps people feel like it's out rather than in you know and that goes such a long way to hopefully reducing you know, some of those some of those cases where people, as you say, Matt, they do bottle it up, feel like they can't talk about it or be honest about it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I love that check-in idea. Smashing. So, lastly, I want to sort of round off with um, what are your three biggest tips to keep your mental health uh, strong and what do you do for yourself? Mm. Oh, this is my, these, these are always my favorite questions because there's, <laughs> there's so many goodies to choose from in terms of options for people. But um, yeah, I guess if it's my favorite ones or things that I, I try and do myself, um, I mean, depending on the week at the hospital and what's going on in my life, uh, I, I think sleep is a really, really important one. And um that's something that I try and protect as best as I can. And for me personally, I notice that sleep is a huge factor in how I'm feeling mentally. Um, and I think in society and in, in general, we don't give it enough credit in terms of what it does for our mental health. So um, one of my favorites for, for how we can look after our mental health is actually to look after and prioritize our sleep. You know, it can help our mood stay stable and regulated. It can help reduce anxiety. Um, there are studies to show that sleep affects someone's risk of self-harm and suicide, for example. Um, so it's a really kind of powerful mediating factor for protecting our mental health and for improving our mental health if we're struggling. So I try and aim for about seven or eight hours a night. And for 90 to 95% of the population, that's going to be the sweet spot. Some people will need more. We all know those annoying night owls that can get five and they still are like fresh as a daisy and, and doing fine. Um, but I think if you can aim for around seven for most people, that's a good hit sort of mark to hit and then you know just looking after the quality of your sleep so trying to get off screens half an hour to an hour before not having caffeine in the afternoon if you can help it um, keeping alcohol kind of to just some days during the week these things don't just give us longer sleep they actually improve the quality of our sleep so looking after sleep would be number one um, probably my second favorite, probably no surprise, is physical activity and exercise. Um, so I'm someone that is a bit of a gym nut. Um, I love sport. I love fitness. So for me, that's something that just keeps me feeling mentally grounded across the week. Um, and again, it's really exciting that modern medicine now shows that that 
exercise and movement, even if it's walking or some Pilates or yoga, that does just as much for our mind and our mental health as it does for our heart and our lungs and, and our bone health and all these other things we've always been taught exercises about. So I think if you can be having kind of three or four sort of points of movement and, and reasonable exercise during the week, that that's really protective for your mental health. Um, and probably my third one that I've been trying to do more of even just recently actually is, is kind of along the lines of, of what you brought up there, um, mate, in terms of just trying to regularly schedule some, some check-in time with people um, and that can benefit us just as as much as it does those other people in our lives and you know I think one of the beautiful things about training to be a psychiatrist and then becoming a psychiatrist is is personally it's just shown me the power of even brief little moments of just feeling fully open and connected with people Um, you know and for for people and especially guys out there listening that doesn't mean you have to be having like a massive dnm and spilling your guts every single week you know but it might just be one or two points across the week where we're actively scheduling in time to just stop catch up with someone talk to them properly where you're focusing just on the chat you're not kind of doing a hundred things at the same time and where you feel you can even just outline how you're feeling that week or how your work week's going um we really underestimate the amount of of kind of steam that can let off in our mind um so yeah probably kind of regularly scheduling some active time for kind of social connection is probably my third tip and I think if people are doing those three things and doing them well um, it can go a long long way to towards kind of looking after and protecting our mental health um, like we do our body. Such important foundations and I think it can be really easy on the world of social media there's so much information and people talking about the science of mental health and and just health in general with biohacking and all this and it can be easy to fall down rabbit holes and spend a long time doing other things and spending lots of money on other things but you know if you you have to go back to basics before you do any of these extra fancy things on top and just finally i always round off with this question Um, And it's similar to what you've just answered. But if you were to have a patient or anyone listening, what is your single best advice that someone can do and take into their life to improve their health and happiness? Look, I think it's, like I say, kind of similar to to some of what I've just sort of um, spat out there before. But, you know, I think one of the biggest things for looking after our mental health and also actually our physical health in my biased opinion, obviously, um, is just to, to really lean into that slightly corny line of, of you know, vulnerability and, and authenticity is is kind of that sweet spot for our mental health. And, you know, I think just as you said, mate, whether it's in medicine or outside of medicine and it's online or in social media, I think there are so many bells and whistles in terms of, medication and biohacking and all these new treatments and all of these complex things that that might be amazing for a lot of people but I think if we strip it all back what psychiatry shows me every single day and what I love about it is that I I think there's just so much power in feeling like you're being heard and feeling like you're able to express 
what's really going on inside and what you're really feeling. Um, so I think if someone was asking me what is my take-home number one tip for looking after your health in general, um, what I would want to add to the pot would be, you know, just leaning into being messy and vulnerable and feeling what you're feeling and not not hiding from it or bottling it or ignoring it um, because, yeah, there's there's just so much to be gained from getting that stuff out and feeling like, you know, you're, you're being heard as yourself. Um, and that might be with a good mate, that might be with a family member, that might be with a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But I, I think, you know, the whole better out than in thing is used for a lot of different things, usually stuff to do with our bowels rather, <laughs> rather than mental health. But, you know, it's, it's absolutely better out than in when it comes to kind of what we're feeling and thinking and things as well. So, yeah, I think people should just lean into that more um, in everyday life. Fantastic. Kieran, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, the time difference has been difficult at times, but we, <laughs> we've got through and I think we've recorded some really good bits and bobs for people to help improve their health and their happiness. So thank you for joining me. No, I hope so, mate. And thank you so much for having me and for um, yeah, persevering with our old uh, London, Sydney time difference. But yeah, it's been a pleasure. So hope everyone enjoys. Thanks, mate. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Straight Talking Doctor Pod. I hope you not only found this episode interesting, but also hopefully learned something that you can use to help improve your life. If you enjoyed the podcast, or even if you didn't, I'd be so, so grateful if you could go onto your streaming site and leave a five-star review so that I can reach as many people as possible. Finally, if you have any feedback or suggestions for further guests, please get in touch with me at the Straight Talking Doctor on Instagram. 